On June 15th of this year, North Boulevard will turn 75 years old, and it's a privilege to work for this church. It's a privilege to join the elders, ministers, and as Joe said, scores of volunteers in relaunching this campaign that we did put on hold in 2020 due to the pandemic. I don't really regret the fact, I speak only for myself now, that we put the campaign on hold. Who, who could have known what was coming when the pandemic broke out? We weren't really sure what to do. We're still not sure what to do. But by putting on a hold for two years, we probably had stretched the outer limits of our obedience to Jesus' final command. In other words, making disciples won't wait forever. In fact, champions become such not by rising to an occasion when things are going well, but by rising to an occasion when they're tough. And so you'll remember in 2020, we spoke about a New Day vision that had really three initiatives. That is building a building for our West Campus, one church, many campuses, for planting two or three churches here in the U.S. over the next three to five years, and for increasing our work in the Global South where we now have planted over 500 churches in the last four years or so. It is an honor to be able to work with Steve Flatt on this campaign as well. Steve was the president of Ezel Harding. He went on to become the senior minister for the largest church of Christ in the world, the Madison Church of Christ. He was the host of the syndicated program, Amazing Grace Bible Hour. Then he became the president of Lipscomb University and is now the CEO of National Healthcare Corporation. And towards the end of the service, you'll hear a message from Steve. I'm just introducing him to you. And I can tell you, he's a phenomenal leader. And he has a vision for making disciples and he has a vision for helping North Boulevard make disciples. So I do think that it's a fair question. Is this the right time? for us to resume this campaign. And I can tell you that the leadership here believes that it is the right time, but I want to speak for myself and I want to say again, not only is this the right time, but the longer we wait to put a premium on disciple making, the more people who will die unprepared to meet their God. And we just can't be okay with that. So we have to find a workaround. We have to find a way to push through what might be difficult and really uninviting circumstances for the sake of the gospel. I was trying to think through, how do I talk about this in this 11-part series on Hebrews 11 without all the rah-rah that you expect a minister to do? Um, I don't really want to talk about the nuts and bolts. I want to remind us of why this matters, why disciple-making matters. So as I'm working on this lesson, like three different drops come on my head. The first one was I heard an interview from a guy who was one of the um, pilots of a landing craft uh, for June the 6th, 1944, for D-Day, the landing on Normandy. And this guy was one of the first ones to lower the front door. And what he said was that when he lowered the door of his landing craft, the first 14 guys were mowed down by machine guns before they ever got off the landing craft. And as I listened to it, I just thought, man, what were these guys made of? What were they made of? And his comment was, these were the real heroes. And th this is true. Two weeks ago, I'm listening to another radio program, and they're talking about the 343 firefighters who died on 9-11, most of them at the Twin Towers. And as they're talking about this, the, the South Tower had fallen. They're interviewing a couple of guys who, who just said this. I can barely, this makes me choke up when I'm just talking about it. 
When the South Tower fell, there were a large group of firefighters who were heading up the stairs in the North Tower. And some of them realized what was about to happen. And they gathered together in a circle and prayed for one another. And these were their last words to each other. It's been great working with you. And then they ran up the stairs. And then just yesterday, I'm watching a, a pro-life speaker who spoke about William Wilberforce. How many years Wilberforce worked, a British parliamentarian, how many years he worked at the end of the 18th century and end of the 19th century to end the abominable practice of slavery. And for all those decades, there was no indication he was ever going to win until one day, out of the sky, God gave him the victory. And by the end of the American Civil War, slavery was abolished in the Christian West. But at any moment, any one of them could have said, this is not a good time for me to be a hero. These are bad times. Can't we put it on hold? Let's just wait until everything settles down. The definition of a hero is not someone who rose to an occasion when everything was easy. The definition of a hero, the definition of someone who is extraordinary is someone who in the middle of hardship rose to the occasion and said, the time is now and I am the one. And so God has placed in our hands the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the one and only hope for the world and it won't wait. And so as we start working through Hebrews chapter 11, and see how ordinary, otherwise ordinary individuals, men and women, particularly from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures, how they rose not just to become extraordinary, but how they rose to become extraordinary in difficult times, in tough situations, in circumstances that really weren't favorable for what they were called to do. That's the call that I'm giving you. I don't think North Boulevard is an ordinary church. But if we were, here's the path to extraordinary. We're going to look only at one verse and one character from Hebrews 11 today, and it is the character Enoch. I'll just read it. It's verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. There is so precious little about this man named Enoch in the Bible. It just invites all kinds of speculation and every, everybody who has a wild hair about writing apocryphal or apocalyptic literature goes to Enoch at some point or another because it just seems to invite, it's sort of happy hunting ground for anyone with a wild theory. There's just so precious little about Enoch, but we do know something about Enoch and that's what I want you to see. The story of Enoch is found in Genesis chapter 5, but to understand his story, you really ought to read chapter 6 first because in Genesis 6, we discover the world in which this ordinary man became extraordinary. So I'll turn you to Genesis 6 very quickly. I'm using the ESV because I just think it captures the essence a bit better here. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And jumping down to verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. By the way, the Greek translation, so the book of Genesis was originally written in Hebrew, but the earliest Greek translation we know of calls these men of renown gigantes in Greek. It's the word from which we get the word giant. 
And so Nephilim have been come to known as giants in the Bible. I want to tell you that when I was a younger man and I read the text about the sons of God um, having relations with the daughters of men and producing giants, I simply didn't have the capacity to understand that in a spiritual way. I just didn't. I grew up, I'm the last guy in the baby boom. I think I might be the, almost the, literally the last guy. And we were just taught a modernist worldview where everything is to be explained in terms of physics. And so, I just assumed that the sons of God in this text were good people and the daughters of men were bad women. And so, good men married bad women and had big kids. And through the years, I've come to realize that was a misreading. The Jews had it right all along because the traditional rabbinic interpretation is these are angelic beings. They're demons who have fallen and have had relations with women and have given birth to monsters. And so, I was trapped on an airplane coming back from somewhere one time, and the choices of movies to watch in the seat in front of me were only a few, and I decided to watch the one called Noah, the one with Russell Crowe that came out in 2014. And not only was it a, it was a disappointing movie to me for a number of reasons. One was that, turns out Noah was actually fighting global warming in this movie instead of sin. A little disappointing to me. Uh, the other thing is that um, it was kind of a boring movie to me, but the thing that really irked me the most is that there were these rock monsters running around in the movie. And I can remember thinking to myself, why in the world, what made them think of this? But now I have to confess to you, actually, I think the movie was more right than I was. These gigantes, as the accepted to the Greek translation says, these were monsters. I want you to know, Enoch rose to the occasion in an age in which there were monsters who were the results of demons coming in with humans. So if we think we have it bad today, it's nothing like Enoch's day. In fact, here's how bad it was in Enoch's day. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And here's some of the saddest wording in the, all, all the Bible. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings. So I'm just going to pause and say, if ever there was a time to say, you know, this isn't a good time for us to make disciple making the main thing. It's really too rough a time right now. Enoch could have claimed that. What makes Enoch a hero is, in spite of the wickedness of the world in which he lived with monsters, the results, the spawn of Satan. Literally, Enoch rose to the occasion. Now, we don't know much about Enoch. He's only mentioned a couple of times in the Bible. In fact, I've already read to you all that's said about him uh, in Hebrews. I'm going to read to you in just a moment what's said about him in Genesis. But first, I want to say there are three tip-offs that Enoch's story is bigger than it first appears. The first tip-off is he's the seventh generation from Adam through Seth. Now, the number seven is always significant in the Bible. Whenever you see it, it's significant. So, we're already being told there's something special about Enoch. The second tip-off is, if you look at the seventh generation of Cain's descendants from Adam, it's Lamech. Lamech is the archetype evil guy in the book of Genesis, making Enoch sort of the antitype of a Lamech. That is, he's the archetypal good guy. There's something going on in the text here. And then I'll just throw one other thing. How many years did Enoch live? Do you remember? 365 years. Okay, there's something going on there. There's something going on there. But here's all we know. 
When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Okay, all of that's the background. And here's the one sentence that the Hebrew writer latches hold of. Here's like the big thing. Enoch walked faithfully with God and then was no more because God took him away. That's it. Some total of what we know about Enoch from the book of Genesis. So here's my question. What does it mean that he walked with God? He was commended as one who pleased God. But I want to tell you that, again, I think I used to read this text wrong, and I want to correct the way I used to read it. I'm an introvert. Introverts aren't shy. We just have to have a lot of time to process things. We're, we, we're weird. We're not shy. In fact, on ISTJ scale and Myers-Briggs, I'm as far into introversion as you can get. If you're doing the color, I'm green. There's no gold in me. There's, no, there's nothing else, just green. So when I used to read that Enoch walked with God, you know what I used to think that meant? What every green thinks. It means that he lived a life of contemplation. It probably meant that he lived on top of a mountain somewhere and he had a library and that he could look out and see the snow pile up and when spring came, he would wander the meadows, stroking his beard, probably had a pipe, maybe a good cigar. And he would often talk to God about how life looks and what the butterflies are up to and so forth. That's the Enoch I wanted to be. That's how I envisioned Enoch. Until I continue to read the very few things we get about Enoch in the New Testament. And here's one of them. Jude, there's only one chapter in Jude, so it's Jude 14 and 15. I want you to listen to what Enoch's walking with God actually looked like. Turns out he was no introvert. Or if so... He did the most unnatural thing that an introvert can do, and that is get up and yell at a bunch of people. Here's what Jude said. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. So the first thing I want you to see is that Enoch prophesied. That means he got up and he spoke loudly to people and he warned them about what was about to happen. This was no guy living in a mountain retreat center in a library contemplating what the butterflies and bumblebees are up to. This is a guy who is actually confronting the monsters of his day and doing just this. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all all their ungodly acts that they've committed in their ungodliness and of the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. By the way, I just want to say, Jude appears to be quoting from a book that's called the book of Enoch. It's a book that we know existed before Jude wrote. It was written sometime between the Testaments. We're not sure that Jude is quoting from this book, but it sure looks like a reference to a book that we know exists. In fact, we have copies of it still that are in libraries today. You can go look, go, go look up First Enoch. You can see that this appears to be a quote from that. It shouldn't bother you. The Bible sometimes quotes other books. It's not a big deal. Preachers quote other books too besides the Bible. Either way, Jude is reminding us that when Enoch is described as walking with God, what it means is he got out in the middle of the pagan world and declared the Word of God. What I want you to say about Enoch In this text, Enoch's faith was not exercised in easy, convenient, soft times. This man became extraordinary 
Because though an ordinary person, he rose up in difficult times and he said, this is the word of God. This is who we are. We're not going to back down. So help us God. That's why you remember Enoch. That's why when the Hebrew writer lists those characters whom we're going to study over the next several months, God willing, and then says at the end of that chapter, time won't permit me to mention all the other ones. That's why he picked this guy. Because Enoch rose up when the time demanded it. And that's what we intend to do. Let me tell you what Enoch was able to perceive. Enoch was able to perceive who people really are. I said this last week, and I don't want to say it so many times that you get tired of hearing it. But I'm not sure that we've really bought into this biblical worldview yet. It's very difficult to do. I remind you, the world is whispering other worldviews. It's very easy for us to listen to other worldviews. It's easy for me to do. I'm not faulting you. You're no more at fault than I am. But it's really easy for us to lose what God actually sees when he looks at humanity. See, when we look at humanity, we see blacks and whites and Latinos and Asians, male and female. We see attractive people and people maybe we wouldn't want to date. We see older people. We see younger people. We see people who look really nice. And we see some people that look just mean, cruel perhaps, even vicious. That's what we see. We have all kinds of categories, rich and poor, educated and uneducated. We have all kinds of categories. Let me remind you, God sees only two categories. He sees the lost and he sees the saved. And that's what Enoch was able to see. And I want to tell you, if we don't see the world this way, we will never have the urgency necessary to preach the gospel. If you don't understand that people apart from the gospel are lost and they're headed for an entire eternity apart from God, why would you ever bother to bring the gospel to them? This is what God sees. This is what Enoch saw. When Enoch was rampaging the world with all these monsters, whatever they were, the Nephilim, the Bible says, gigantes in Greek, he was able to perceive there are two kinds of worlds, saved and lost. And my job is to speak to lost people. If we lose sight of that, we have robbed the world of the only hope it has. I'm for the other categories. You know, male and female matters. Black, white, they matter. I'm not suggesting those categories are irrelevant. They're very relevant. But what I will say is ultimately the category by which Enoch changed the world was who is lost and who is saved. And just before you jump to conclusions here, I want to make sure that you don't think that I'm suggesting the two categories are the good and the bad. Because I've known a lot of saved people who weren't all that good. And I've known a lot of lost people who were pretty good people. It's not about who's good and who's bad. It's about whose blood Jesus has redeemed and whose it has not. That's it. It's God's work, not my work. The second thing I want to make sure that you don't conclude that I'm saying is that we should go around judging people. Good news, you don't have to judge anybody. God will take care of it. And he's a just judge, by the way. But that doesn't mean that because I'm not the judge that I shouldn't declare to lost people the gospel. God will determine where they end up in eternity, but I have a job of proclaiming the gospel to anyone who's outside of Jesus. What I'm trying to say to you is when you go back to school, when you see people in your classroom, when you see people at your work, when you interact with your neighbors, when you have your next family meal, you need to sit there and realize some people at this table are lost and some are saved and I have a job to do. When you look at your next committee meeting or your next Zoom meeting or when you're in your next classroom or when you're thinking politics, 
When you're looking at the next protest, whether it's a right-leaning protest, a left-leaning protest, when you're sitting at family dinner and all you can think of is, I wish he hadn't come, all he does is he talks, it just ruins dinner and so forth. Can I give you a new category? Can I ask you to look at everybody as either saved or lost and then do your job of witnessing Jesus to lost people? Do it in love. Do it for their sake. I want to tell you something. It is not loving to leave lost people lost. That's not love. That so-called tolerance is hatred. It's, it's actually worse. It's selfishness. I'll just leave you alone. Who am I? You do your thing, I'll do my thing. Really? Is that what Jesus said? Is that what God said? You do your thing, I'll do my thing. If God had said that, you know where you'd be right now? Damn to hell. I'm just suggesting Enoch makes it into this hall of faith because Enoch understands. I had somebody come to me, a leader in a church. I don't want to say which church, but it was a church that was a very prominent church for years. Prominent speaker, big church, did a lot of good things. But over the last 20, 25 years or so, the attendance has declined, and they've gotten to where there are fewer than 100. They're in trouble. They're in a place in Tennessee where real estate's expensive. They're having a hard time making their payments on their bills and so forth. So they had hired a consultant to come in and talk to them about how to turn things around, how to reverse things. So this guy comes to me and he says, hey, I just had this consultant come. He's a leader. He says, I just wanted to see if you had any opinion on turning things around. And I said, well, what did the consultant tell you? He said, well, we need to change our music, change how we interact between males and females, and we need to do more community service. And I said, that's it? That? That's it? He said, yeah, that's, that's what he told us we need to do. Well, if y'all know me, you know, that's not a real satisfying answer to me. That's like if you're driving towards a canyon and the bridge is washed out, that's like saying, hey, you know what you need to do? Change the radio station, adjust your seat, and roll down the windows. I'm going to tell you, we're losing churches left and right in the U.S., and you know what the answer is? The answer is not change your music or do more community service. The answer is to make disciples. The answer is to recover the power of the gospel. What I told this guy is, if your church isn't making disciples, not only are you not going to exist, but I can make the argument you ought not exist. What other job do we have? If you make disciples, you will get social justice. If you don't make disciples, whatever justice you think you're getting is not from God. If you make disciples, people's mental health will go better. If you make disciples, fathers will stay committed to their families and all the problems we see, the incarceration rates, these young men who are way out of control, those of you who teach them. If we make disciples, their whole lives will be different. Making disciples is curing the disease. Everything else is just treating the symptoms. And I believe we ought to treat symptoms. I want to make sure you understand that. If I get COVID, treat my symptoms, please, those of you who are MDs. But I'd much rather you cure the disease. Don't confuse symptoms with the disease. The gospel is the only cure that we have. I think Enoch understood this. Let me put it in this language, Ephesians 6 and verse 12. When we deal with all sorts of symptoms, we're doing good works. I believe in them. I want to make sure you get that. I believe in it. But if we're not preaching the gospel and making disciples, we're not making lasting changes in people's lives. That's why Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against high rent rates. Our struggle is not against food and issues. Our struggle is not against incarceration rates. Our struggle is not against drugs. Our struggle is it's a battle for the souls of humanity. When you get their souls, you get everything else. 
It's Paul who says this. This is a spiritual battle. That's why we face it with spiritual weapons. That's why the gospel is the most effective tool we have. Because the gospel gets inside of the heart and changes people. This is not him. But I'm going to call this Warren. Warren. His name, Warren. Warren grew up in a family. His mother taught him Jesus. But he didn't stick. Grew up in Texas. When Warren was, Warren was a teenager, he began to use meth and he destroyed his life. Warren became not only a meth addict, obviously couldn't keep a job. He began to deal in meth, in and out of jail, in and out of prison, homeless. Warren destroyed his life. In 2015, Warren was homeless again. He called a brother-in-law and said, I just need to play. Can I stay on your couch? And his brother-in-law practiced tough love, which, by the way, sometimes you have to do. His brother-in-law said, I'll give you a meal, but you can't stay here. You've, you've used all your credits here. And that same day, Warren notices on his cell phone a Facebook post from someone he hadn't seen in 25 years who lived in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. He contacted the person via Facebook and said, I'm, I'm desperate. Can I come to Murfreesboro? Will you help me? And the Facebook friend said, yeah. You can. Come to Mercer, let me know. Um, Warren's truck was so in such bad shape that he knew it wouldn't drive from Texas to Tennessee, so he sold his truck for a couple hundred dollars, and he bought a bus ticket. And he took a bus from Texas to Nashville and was picked up by his friend, who happens to be a member at North Boulevard, actually a member of our West Campus. And the friend said to Warren, I'm going to help you, but on one condition. You're going to go to church or I'm not going to help. And Warren goes to West Campus where a group of people surround him with the love of God. He falls in love with Jesus all over again. I called Warren this week, by the way, because I knew of Warren's story. I said, Warren, tell me what's going on. Warren cries. By the way, he said, I'm sorry. Every time I talk about this, I start crying. He said, I set down my meth pipe in 2015 and I've been drug free for six years. He said, after I did that, he said, I decided, well, if I can do that, if God will help me get, do that, he says, I can qu quit smoking cigarettes. He set his cigarettes down. He's been cigarette-free for five years. Not just that. But Warren suddenly finds himself working and developing a skill as an electrician that he didn't even know he had. He soon became an electrician, was so good at it that he's now started his own business. He bought his first home last year, his first home ever. When I spoke to him, he said, I believe in NA, I believe in AA, but North Boulevard, that's my group. And then he said, tell them that they have no idea how much they changed me. Let me tell you something. You know what Warren needed? He probably needed financial assistance. I'm sure that Warren needed rent assistance. I'm for rent assistance. I'm for it. I believe in it. He needed food. He needed someone to let him use his couch. But I'm going to tell you what changed his life. What changed his life was the gospel because it got inside of him. Once it got inside of him, it cured him of the disease. And then the symptoms just went away. I'm arguing for us that if we are the people of God, we cure diseases and don't settle for simply treating symptoms. You think it works? I see one of our ministers sitting out at this campus today, Ben, Ben Beavers. Ben and a couple of his friends were doing Bible studies at a local restaurant. They've been doing that for some time. They do it pretty regularly at night. They're doing a Bible study. This was, uh, I don't know how long ago. Ben told me I've forgotten already. Some guy who I think is Hindu, by the way, if you're in Murfreesboro, the idea that we have Hindus in Murfreesboro is just a new idea for us for so many years. And if you were in Murfreesboro, you were either Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, or Church of Christ. Now we have all kinds of folks. 
This guy sees him over during the Bible study. He's so moved by the love and the care and the camaraderie of it. He goes up to him and he says, I just like what you have. Is there some way I can join your group? This is random, randomly happened. Ben's answer is, yeah, for $300, which Ben was joking, but the guy reaches for his wallet to give $300 to join the group. No, no, I'm joking, he says. They sit down. As they sit down, the guy starts pouring his soul out. Turns out that he had been involved in a burglary, has not been caught, and it has so weighed on him that he has not had a good night's sleep since then. He's had nightmares every night. So they said, we're just going to pray over that, and we're going to pray that the Lord will move you to do the right thing. So they pray over it. They see this guy the next week. He comes in and he says, I've not had a nightmare all week. You know what he did? He said, the next day I went down and I turned myself into the police. That's what the gospel does. You see, you can hire as many police officers as you, as you want. I'm, I'm pro-police. Don't hear me wrong. But what I'm saying is that treats the symptom. And we have to treat symptoms. But heal the disease and you won't have symptoms anymore. The gospel cures the disease. And a church that doesn't get that is a church that's going to die. And pardon me, it's a church that ought to die. Because any church that's not doing the great commission of Jesus Christ, his final command, any church that will make his last words their first priority has no business talking about the gospel. And Enoch understood this is our time, that we can't wait anymore. The gospel doesn't wait 50,000 Americans committed suicide last year. The number one killer for men ages 18 through 45 in America, you know what it is? Number one killer ages 18 to 45, not suicide, not motor vehicle accidents, not heart disease, not COVID. You know what it is? Fentanyl. The number one killer of men ages 18 to 45, fentanyl. You know how you treat fentanyl? With the gospel. That this is the time for us to preach the good news of Jesus and to change the hearts of people. This is our time. It doesn't wait for somebody else. The monsters are here, and we are the Enoch. That's why Jesus' last words, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, needs to be our first priority. So God sees lost and he sees saved, but he sees a church where the saved leave their comfort and go into the world of the lost in order to bring people back to Jesus. That's what God sees. That's who we are, and that's what we intend to do. And that's why in the vision, we want to strengthen the West Campus. You all understand the largest, the, the greatest population of zip codes in Rutherford County. You know, what the, you know what it is now? Those of you who are older, 37130, unless you went out in the county and bought you a big house, built it. It's not 37129. Those of you who are out there at Sportscom, the most populated area in Rutherford County now, the 37128 zip code. That's the area that has the fewest churches as well. That is, as that population is exploding, we're not moving the gospel in there. I want to make sure you guys know there are fewer than 300 churches in Rutherford County, which means that if this next Sunday everybody in Rutherford County got up and went to church, of the 348,000 people in Rutherford County, somewhere in the vicinity of 280,000 of them wouldn't have a seat. That's how few churches we have. And we're the most churched county probably in the United States of America here in Rutherford County. In the last 25 years, there are now fewer churches of Christ in Rutherford County than there were 25 years ago, even though the population is twice the size. I'm just saying, now is our time. It won't wait. Near... It's time to plant churches in the U.S. that thrive, that win people to Jesus. And far 
Oh, my goodness, we've already been involved in planting 500 churches just over the last three and a half or four years. Enoch rose up. He understood. He got the times. He realized what God was calling him to do. And um, it's our time. So I want to ask you a question. You see this little thug? <laughs> it's not me in case you're wondering. Uh, this little goth thug, I think he's about 12 years old here. This is Cain. Cain never met his dad. His dad's been in prison his whole life. Cain grew up in Appalachia. He says everybody in Appalachia talks about Jesus. It's just a lot of them don't mean it. So he heard about Jesus, but didn't really know him. His mother's a drug addict. Eventually, the courts would have to take Cain out for Cain's own well-being and place him with an aunt and an uncle. When Cain was 12 years old, about this time in his life, he was so filled with anger and so hopeless and suicidal. He laid it on the line and he said, Jesus, if you really are there, get me out of here or stop talking to me. I don't want anything to do with you. And he felt God did nothing. So this old thug became an, an atheist. But about age 14, he did something that you don't really want to see guys like this do. That is, he began to learn mixed martial arts. We're kind of hoping guys like this don't learn that. And for four years, he had a sensei named Steve. Y'all heard me talk about the sensei who helped change my son's life? Steve was a Christian. He wasn't even a perfect Christian. He was a Christian, though. And for four years, he poured into Cain's life. He discipled him. Let me say something about this young man. You know what he needed? He probably needs uh, rent subsidies. I'm for that. Y'all hear that I'm for it, don't you? Because that symptom's a very serious symptom and it can kill people if it's not treated. He probably needed food. I mean, he probably needed food assistance, probably got a, a card. He probably needed after school pro. Who knows what all he needed? But I'm here to tell you the real disease should not be confused with the mere symptoms. And when Steve poured into this young man's life, by the time this young man became a freshman in college, his crisis had gotten so bad that he finally went back to the God whom he had sold not too many years before, you don't exist, and he said, please, please help me. And he remembered that sensei who had said, Jesus will help you. So he goes to a church. He's not at a church for a couple of weeks before he finally says, I'm ready. He's baptized. Two weeks later, he baptizes his friend. A couple of weeks later, he's baptized somebody else. In fact, he becomes a little baptizing machine. And he's so good at baptizing that the church hires him as an intern to baptize people. And he's so good at baptizing people that a church in Dayton, Ohio, hears about him and says, will you come work as associate minister at our church baptizing people? Which is what he was doing until two weeks ago when North Boulevard hired our little thug to plant our next church here somewhere in the U.S. This is Cain Atkinson. Cain is now a minister of the gospel, and I'll tell you why Cain is so good at baptizing. It's because he knows what Enoch knew. He knows the difference between lost and saved. And when you know the world is lost, you go after them. Pretty soon, this fundraiser we're doing is going to take that little guy and going to use him to, to bring who knows how many hundreds of people to King Jesus. Now, 
You want a definition of faith? What's the very next verse in Hebrews chapter 11? Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. And what's our word? That he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So I'm laying the challenge out before us that this is not a good time for this initiative. But that's because there's never a good time. The good time is when God says, go make disciples. And we say, yes, sir, that's what we're going to do. So I invite you to stand up on the gospel. You can stand up literally while we sing this song and make our resolve.